Well, what comes to mind when you think about religion? Do you think about a set of rules? Do you think of a specific demographic of people that vote conservatively? Do you think of the violence and corruption that has been caused by those who abuse religious systems? All of those answers are probably fair, but I wonder, do you think about joy when you think about religion? Even more so, when you think about Christianity, do you think of Christians as those that, that know and enjoy God, as those who delight in Him? Do you see Christians as those who want to obey God's rules because they love Him and find joy in obeying Him? If you were to have asked me these questions about eight years ago, I probably would have said no. For me, Christianity felt like a cold, dead religion that was more about behavior management than joy in Christ. Growing up in a Christian home, I often felt crippled by the rules of the Bible. I felt like I couldn't live up to God's standard. And I thought frequently that that there was no way that God could love me. I was too dirty. I had gone too far. So I lived on a pendulum. I would swing from indulging my flesh one day to mentally torturing myself the next. I would spend hours laying in bed asking, why can't I just be better? And so eight years ago, it seemed like Jesus had no good news for me. Thankfully, that wasn't true. Over a season of several months, I had multiple friends and mentors at the church I was attending share the gospel with me. They gave me good news. And they helped me see that while I'm a sinner, that I could be made right with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. They helped me see that this righteous and just God actually lifts the heads of weak and weary sinners and makes them alive in His Son. And they helped me to see that knowing Jesus was better than anything this world could offer. They helped me see that following Jesus, yes, meant obeying Him, but also knowing and enjoying Him. And so friends, is, is that the Jesus that you know? Have you tasted and seen that He's good? Do you delight in Him? Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke 5, uh, verses 33-39. through 39. If you don't have a Bible, uh, feel free to use one of those Black Pew Bibles that's in front of you. If you don't have one of those at home, you can, you can actually take that home. Um, if you're flipping through trying to find Luke and you've landed in Matthew, keep flipping to the right, you're almost there. If you've landed in John, then you've gone a little too far, so start flipping to the left. So read with me starting in verse 33. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. 
And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write it upon our hearts. So if you take notes, I want you to write this down. Uh, This is my sermon in a sentence. So kids, if you have one of those note sheets, uh, there's a box up top that you can put this in. Uh, But this is my sermon in a sentence. It says that believers are made new by inward transformation, not outward tradition. So again, believers are made new by inward transformation, not outward tradition. So first, we'll see the attitude of the Pharisees in verse 33. And then second, we'll see the attitude of the kingdom in verse 34 through 35. And then third, we'll see the newness of the kingdom in verse 36 through 39. So again, we have the attitude of the Pharisees, the attitude of the kingdom, and then the newness of the kingdom. So again, our first point will be the attitude of the Pharisees. So look with me at verse 33. Our passage today starts with the word and. So whenever you're reading the Bible and you come across a word like and or then at the beginning of a passage, it should make you think, what has happened before this passage? So if you were here last week, you'll remember that we covered the previous passage in chapter 5. So before we move forward in our text this week, uh, I think it would be helpful for us to recap what we learned last week. So we saw Jesus call a tax collector named Levi. He called him to follow him. And in response, Levi left everything and followed Jesus. And he also threw him a great feast. And so at this feast, we saw that he invited tax collectors. He invited all of his friends from work. And so the Pharisees saw this And they grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And so Jesus responded, saying that those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So we saw two things in Jesus' response to the Pharisees' question. First, we saw that Jesus came to call sinners. Jesus calls those who recognize that they've sinned against God and that they're in need of His grace to save them. Second, we saw that Jesus called out the Pharisees for being self-righteous. Instead of recognizing their sickness, they thought of themselves as being well. They thought of themselves as being righteous when they were in fact sinners. And it's here that our text begins. So look with me again at verse 33. We see the Pharisees making a comparison between their disciples, John's disciples, and Jesus' disciples. So the text says, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. So they first compare Jesus' disciples to John's disciples. This John that the Pharisees referred to is actually John the Baptist. Uh, You might remember that John baptized Jesus a couple earlier, or a couple chapters earlier in the book of Luke. Well, we see in the text that 
John also had disciples. He had those that followed him. And they fasted often and offered prayers. And it states that the Pharisees' disciples did the same. So you might be wondering, what does it mean for them to fast? And why are they doing it? Well, fasting is when someone abstains from food or drink. It doesn't necessarily have to be that, but that's, that's what they did then. Um, and, in mo- and it's most likely for a religious purpose. So you might remember that God commanded His people, the Israelites, to fast in the Old Testament. So in Leviticus 16.29, uh, we see that they were commanded to fast on the Day of Atonement, uh, which is also known as Yom Kippur. And so they fasted to mourn over their sin. And they did this in anticipation of a, of a high priest going into the temple or tabernacle on their behalf and making a sin offering. And so we also see in Zechariah 8, 19, that the Israelites fasted four times a year. And they did this to remember the, stru- the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And so other times of fasting could have been deemed appropriate. It could have been done in response to mourning the loss of a loved one or when someone was in a season of prayer. You might remember and when we were in Nehemiah a couple months ago that Nehemiah actually fasted and prayed. So a lot of times we see fasting and prayer together. So let's fast forward back to the time of our text. Again, we see that John's disciples were fasting. Many commentators say that they were probably fasting at this time because John was in prison. They were fasting and praying for John because they were worried about his safety. And this sounds like a fairly legit reason to fast. And also we see that the Pharisees and their disciples fasted. They actually fasted about twice a week. We saw that in Luke 18 last week. And they made sure that everyone knew it. They would make their faces unattractive by covering them with ashes and by having a grim expression so that everybody knew that they were fasting. So it's kind of like the guy who, who's doing Whole30 or the keto diet with his wife. And so you know, you know that guy. So every time he eats a bite of kale, you can just see him dying a little bit on the inside. And he wears his agony on his face and he wants everybody to know it. I'll confess I've been that guy. I have to eat sauerkraut a lot, so you you guys have nothing to complain about. (laughs) But if you're this guy, just stop it. We get that you don't like kale. You'll be okay, buddy. Anyways, they didn't just want everyone to know that they were fasting. The Pharisees had also added to the requirements of God's law. They might have had good motives for implementing these practices at first, but over time they began to make their fasting regimen law. They expected everyone to follow it. And so maybe you find yourself doing the same thing. You might not expect others to fast twice weekly, but do you grow irritable when your friends or family don't do things the same way that you do? Do you get short with those who don't reach your standard? Maybe you've asked yourself some of these questions. Maybe you've thought, why doesn't this person get up the, in, as early as I do? They must not care about reading the Bible as much as me. Maybe you've thought, why do they watch those kind of movies? 
They must not care about holiness. Or on the flip side, why don't, why don't they watch those kind of movies? They must be legalistic. Maybe you thought, why did they vote for a Democrat? They must not have Christian values. Or why did they vote for a conservative? They must not love people like Jesus. Or maybe you've thought, why don't they raise their hands during singing? They must not really love the Lord as much as I do. Or, or why do they raise their hands during singing? They must not be genuine. They're probably just trying to show off. They're probably trying to be like the Pharisees. And maybe you've thought, why doesn't that couple homeschool their kids? They must not really want to train and disciple them. Or on the flip side, why doesn't that couple send their kids to public school? They're just being too restrictive and controlling. And while some of these might be good practices, this kind of comparison kills joy. And it has the potential to wreck our relationships with others. Whether you're a spouse, a parent, a sibling, a roommate, a boss, or a coworker, is this how you think of those you regularly interact with? Do you expect things of them that the Bible wouldn't ask of them? So brothers and sisters, when we try to control the actions and responses of others, we try to be God. So friend, don't believe the lie that the serpent told the man and the woman in the garden. You're not God. You'll never be God. And you're not in control. You don't get to make the law. Yet this is the attitude of the Pharisees. It desires to control others. Yet instead it crushes them with man-made rules. And so like we saw last week, sin isn't just the bad things we do. It's also the good things we do with bad motives. And so our sinful actions actually flow from a sinful heart. So this self-righteous attitude flows out of a sinful and sick heart. And there's nothing you can do in your own power to change it. No amount of new rules or mentally crushing yourself can make your sick heart healthy. Friends, you need a new heart and a new mind and a new will. You need something better, or better yet, someone outside of yourself to heal you, to give you new desires and a new attitude. And this attitude is not one of self-righteousness, but one of eternal joy. And so you might be asking, where do I find this eternal joy? Well, look with me at verse 34. Again, in verse 34 and 35, we see the attitude of the kingdom. So here we see Jesus' response to the Pharisees' statement. He asked them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? So to understand this image, I think that there are three uh, helpful questions that we should ask. So first, who is the bridegroom? Well, Jesus is using Old Testament imagery here that is used to describe God's relationship with Israel. We see this imagery in Isaiah 62, verse 5, which says, 
For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And again, we see this imagery in Hosea 2, verses 19 through 20, which says, And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. God is saying through the prophets that his people are his bride. Yet it also seems apparent from the context that Jesus is referring to himself as the bridegroom. And so he is God the Son and the Messiah who has come to save his bride. And so it's a, it's a joyous occasion to be with Jesus. This was something for them to be rejoicing about. And so the second question we need to ask is, who are the wedding guests? Well, the wedding guests are those who are with the bridegroom. And so if Jesus is the bridegroom, then that would probably make the disciples his wedding guests. And so then the third question uh, we need to ask then is, why are they not fasting? This is what the Pharisees were wondering. They were wondering, why are they not taking a mournful posture like us? Well, I don't know about you, but it'd be a huge bummer to think you're going to a wedding and then you end up at a funeral. On the flip side, it'd also be strange to think you're going to a funeral and then you end up at a wedding. And so you see, the Pharisees were expecting Jesus' disciples to have a more funeral-esque posture. Instead, they saw those who were acting like they were at a wedding. They were feasting and drinking and enjoying the company of one another. Why? Because they were with the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. So for the disciples, this wasn't a time to mourn. This was a time to celebrate. The bridegroom was here. It was a joyous time for them to know and enjoy Jesus. Yet look with me at verse 35. Jesus says that the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. We know that there came a day when Jesus was taken away from the disciples. So in verse 35, Jesus is actually hinting at his death. For the disciples, Jesus' death was a time to mourn. This man that they had followed who they thought was the Messiah died. So what hope was there for them now? Was he really the king from David's line that would rule forever? Well, friends, if you know this story of good news, Jesus didn't stay dead. The Father raised him from the dead to new life. And for the disciples and others who followed Jesus, this was again a time to celebrate and enjoy Jesus. The bridegroom was with them, yet he also ascended later to sit at the right hand of the Father. And so was this another time for the disciples to fast and mourn? And so for us, since Jesus isn't present bodily with us right now, should we also be fasting and mourning like the Israelites? Well, if you remember earlier, I talked about the Jewish holiday Yom Kippur. On Yom Kippur, the Israelites fasted to mourn over their sin, and they did this in anticipation of the high priest 
making a sin offering on their behalf. Yet they had to do this year after year after year. And so brothers and sisters, we no longer fast and mourn this way. Why? Because Jesus is a greater high priest who gave himself as a once for all sacrifice. If you're in Christ, then all of your sin was laid on Jesus. So weary sinner, it's time to lift your head. All of your sin was nailed to the cross. Your debt was paid in full. And so this is why our assurance of pardon was this. It says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So brothers and sisters, all of your sin has been paid for. All of your transgressions have been removed. And while Jesus is now at the right hand of the Father, He's not distant from us. He's with us by His Spirit. And so if you've repented of your sin and trusted in Christ, then you've been united to Christ by the Spirit. And so even though Jesus isn't with us bodily, we're still able to know and enjoy Him and the Father by the Spirit. So friends, Christians should be a joyous people because of this reality. And so I know for some of us in this room that experiencing joy seems impossible. You might be going through a difficult season in your marriage. You might be frustrated that God hasn't provided you with a spouse. You might be dealing with what feels like unending sickness and pain. You might feel paralyzed by anxiety and depression. You might be battling a life-dominating sin that, that won't seem to go away. Brothers and sisters, let me be honest with you. Our joy isn't found in more date nights. It isn't found in a prospective spouse or healthy bodies or less busy schedules. Our joy is found in Christ. And this joy is an eternal joy. The Father has eternally loved and enjoyed fellowship with the Son and the Spirit. And the Father has poured this love and joy into us by the Spirit. And so this joy is yours in Christ regardless of your circumstances. You can't earn it. You can't mentally beat yourself to a pulp to experience it. It's God's gift to you. And so God has brought us into fellowship with Him so that we can experience this joy forever. So while fasting is still permissible for believers, we don't fast as those without joy or hope. And while we're still grieved over, while we're supposed to be grieved over our sin, we're not defeated by it. Instead, our joy in the Lord spurs us to walk in obedience. And for being honest, we have to fight to experience joy in the Lord because we live in a world where sin is still present. But listen to this. We know that there's coming a day where King Jesus will return to make all things new. And so sin, death, and the devil's attempts to rob our joy will be no more. And until that day, we pray, come Lord Jesus, knowing with full assurance that he has said, surely I'm coming soon. So brothers and sisters, because this is true, 
We can rejoice in all of our circumstances. Well, joy is the attitude of those who are in the kingdom. It's the attitude of those who know and follow Jesus. So friends, I ask again, have you experienced this joy? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Do you delight in Him? Often our experience of this joy is quenched by our self-righteous desires. When we exalt ourselves over others and hold our personal practices over their heads, we're not in sync with the attitude of the kingdom. So what, was, what must we give up to joyfully follow King Jesus? Well, look with me at verse 36. Again, in verse 36 through 39, we'll see the newness of the kingdom. And so it's here that Jesus starts telling two parables. In the first parable, we'll see the new garment versus the old garment. And in the second parable, we'll see the new wineskins versus the old wineskins. And so look with me at the first parable. It says, No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And so Jesus' audience would have known that if you tore an old garment and then sewn a new garment on top of it, that it would actually ruin both garments. The old garment would be ruined because it doesn't match the new garment. It looks weird now. And the new garment would be ruined because it's now torn. And so what does this mean? Well, when Jesus tells a parable, we can pretty much assume that he's trying to make one point and that that one point is about the kingdom. So then what is this new garment symbolizing? The new garment is Jesus' message of the kingdom. We can see this message of the kingdom in Mark 1, verses 14 through 15. It states, After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus was calling sinners to turn from their sin and to believe the good news. This good news is that Jesus is the Messiah, that He came to pay for the sins of His people and to give them life by the Spirit. So then, what is the old garment symbolizing? Well, the old garment is the existing forms of Judaism. You see, Jesus came to usher in a new covenant. All of the covenants prior to the new covenant were looking forward to this new covenant. And so the ceremonial laws that came with the Mosaic covenant, they were just shadows of this new covenant reality. We see this in Hebrews 10.1, which says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So these sacrifices didn't actually pay for sin, but they pointed to the one who would pay for sin. And so because Jesus offered Himself as a once-for-all sacrifice, there's now no need for the Levitical priesthood. And since Jesus, as our greater high priest, sat down at the right hand of the Father, we no longer need 
the temple. Because Jesus has sent His Spirit to dwell in His people. The church is now God's temple. And we can now draw near to the Father through the Son wherever we are. So you can't have the new garment and the old garment. They don't match. And you'll ruin the new if you try to keep the old. And so this is especially true if you've added to the old. Jesus isn't just fulfilling the ceremonial laws, but He's calling the Pharisees to get rid of their rigid system. So you can't keep the old and have the new. Well, let's now look at the second parable. The text says in verse 37 that no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. Jesus is making the point that He made in the previous parable. But now He's using the image of wine and wineskins. And so if you didn't know, uh, wine at this time was fermented in animal skin. And this is what Jesus means when He says wineskins. And so after the wine was finished fermenting, you wouldn't drink the wine and then add new wine into the old wineskin. That would actually cause the wineskin to burst. And so if you wanted to ferment new wine, then you had to have fresh wineskins. And so this is what Jesus affirms in verse 38 when he says, but new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying that you can't put the message of the kingdom into those who cling the old forms of Judaism. This is, this is what Jesus affirms in verse 39. It says, no one after drinking old wine desires new. For he says the old is good. The Pharisees preferred the old traditions and the laws that they had made. And they didn't want to depart from them. Unlike the tax collector Levi in the previous passage, they didn't want to leave everything and follow Jesus. You see, clinging to their traditions meant that they could hold their self-righteousness over others' heads. It meant that they could exalt themselves over others. It meant that they could judge others for not having the same convictions as them. And so they didn't want to turn from their self-righteousness and trust in Christ's righteousness. And so friends, the message of the kingdom only bears fruit in those that have been made new. And if you cling to your self-righteousness, then you'll never be made new. So friends, we're all sick with sin. We need God to give us a new heart and a new mind and a new will. And so we must recognize that we're, in, we're sinners in need of God's grace. If we cling to our self-righteousness, then we'll never recognize our need. And so this is why I love the lyrics uh, from the song we sung this morning, Not in Me. It says, No list of sins I have not done. No list of virtues I pursue. No list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. No humble dress. No fervent prayer. No lifted hands. No tearful song. No recitation of the truth can justify a single wrong. No separation from the world. No work I do, no gift I give can cleanse my conscience, cleanse my hands. 
I cannot cause my soul to live. Friends, you can't make yourself righteous before God. No amount of outward tradition can make you match the righteousness of God. You're going to fall short 10 times out of 10. But listen to this. The song has good news for us. We sung, My righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' debt. And my weary load was borne by Him, and He alone can give me rest. So friends, God is the only one who is righteous. Yet God the Son took on flesh, and He lived the life that you and I couldn't live. He walked in perfect obedience to God's law. Yet He also humbled Himself to the point of death. He took on our sin. And friend, the righteous became the unrighteous for you if you will trust and believe in Jesus Christ. Yet He didn't stay dead though. God the Father raised Him from the dead and now those who trust in Him for salvation are given new life in Him. And so if, if you're in Christ, then God no longer sees you as unrighteous. Instead, He sees Christ's righteousness. It's been imputed to you. It's been given to you. But friend, if you haven't trusted in this good news, you'll be judged on the last day by your very own righteousness. And trust me, you can't stand before Him righteous in your own strength. So don't wait. Cling to Christ today. Make Him your treasure. Find your joy and righteousness in Him by turning from sin and trusting in Christ. So for those here today that are believers, how do we fight against having the attitude of the Pharisees? How do we put to death our desire to trust in our own righteousness and exalt ourselves over others? Well, I'm going to give you three things. First, we look to the cross. It's only in the cross that we find the strength to fight sin. We need to remember that we're sinners who are in need of God's grace. We need to remember that Jesus has defeated sin and that we don't have to give into it anymore. So brothers and sisters, don't despair when you see self-righteousness in your life. Grieve it, but remember that you have all the grace you need in Christ, like what Jono said earlier this morning. You can turn away from that sin because God has given you new desires to turn to Christ. And so remember that you have something better than being better than others now. You have Christ Himself as your treasure. So seek to know Him and enjoy Him. And so secondly, we need to analyze our applications. So what I mean by this is that there are necessary and possible applications. And so the pastor, the uh, Bidiyan Mbwile, makes this point in his commentary on this passage. A necessary application applies to all people. So they come directly out of the biblical text. And so one example would be, do not covet. This applies to everyone. No one should covet. But as you analyze your life, you might realize that, that TV commercials 
tempt you to covet others' possessions. And so you might then avoid watching TV commercials, our TV shows or movies that have a lot of product placement. I know that a lot of us don't want to watch commercials anyways. Um, but this would be a possible application. This doesn't mean that everyone must avoid watching commercials or certain TV shows and movies. So like the Pharisees in their strict fasting regimen, we need to be careful in how we apply these possible applications to others. Yet this also doesn't mean that we shouldn't observe possible applications. It's a good thing to want to glorify God by walking in obedience to His Word. And so that means we have to apply His Word to our life. We have to see how does it practically look like for me to do this. And so if avoiding certain things helps you follow God's world, Word, then do it. But remember that not everyone has to do it the exact same way that you do. And so thirdly, look for God's grace in others. We're often tempted to see what's wrong with others more than what's good. And so Pastor Jeff has frequently said that we need to become grace detectives. And so when you're tempted to grow irritable with your spouse, your kids, a roommate, a sibling, or a coworker, ask, how can I praise God for this person? How can I thank Him? How can I see God's character in this person who's an image bearer of God? And how have I seen them grow over the years that I've known them? How have I seen God's work in them? So we need to be thankful for God's work in others. And this posture of thankfulness is more Christ-like than a posture of constantly criticizing others. And so you might even consider encouraging another brother or sister this morning with, with how thankful you are for them. You might do this in person after the service or you're even over a text message. You're just thinking, how, how can I get my eyes off of myself and onto God and then that flow into to me wanting to, to love others? So again, we need to look to the cross. We need to analyze our applications and we need to look for grace in others. So to conclude, God has given us all the grace we need in Christ to do this. So change might not be instantaneous, and it might not happen to the extent that we'd like it to be ever in this life, but we need to be patient. We need to trust God's timing with our sanctification. He has promised to make us like Christ. And friends, God never breaks His promises. Why? Because He's changing and His unchanging promises find their yes and amen in Christ. So treasure Christ above all things. Boast in His righteousness and not your own. And find your joy in Him both now and forevermore.